Hey everybody, it's another Rob show this week. My folks are around here in Mexico and I've been tied up for quite a long while by this point. Plus, I caught a cold off one of my relatives and I wouldn't be able to lay down a good recording anyway. I realize it's been a lot of extraneous content rather than core or even short shows in the last two months, but that's all set to change. It's not exactly, or really at all, good news, but the new startup I was working at, 50 States of Blue, went under last Friday. I pretty much thought that had been in the wind from the beginning, because it had never seemed to me as though we'd invented a new and innovative way to report local news as much as we'd invented WordPress blogs. But I was happy to do the work and to get paid a bit and earn bylines. Fact is, now, though, that it's gone, and SFD's back to being my chief going concern. For today, he was Rob, the other guy is a good friend from my brief Istanbul days named Ernie, and I'm John Coombs. This is Talk for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Okay, I believe we are now live. Welcome to live programming at the Moore Freedom Foundation. Today we're going to be discussing the oil market. Notice, as I have hung out in the YouTube comments, Twitter, whatnot, that there are a lot of misconceptions about what exactly is happening with the oil market right now. And it's kind of central to my critique of Saudi Arabia, of U.S. politics, of world politics at this moment, of the fact that the U.S. is still really involved in the Middle East. And I wanted to do sort of a live chat explaining at a little more length why I think the oil market has fundamentally changed. And today I am lucky enough to be joined in this endeavor by John from Safe for Democracy. 
Hey guys. Yeah. This is, I don't know what the sixth talk Rob and I've done. Hopefully some of you know me by now. My name is John Coombs. I have a website and a podcast called Safe Democracy, where we talk about the failures of U.S. foreign policy. Second series on the coup against Mossadegh and Iran. First series on the coup against our friends in Guatemala. And soon we're going to have our third series on the history of Vietnam from 2200 BC right up through the end of the American War in 1975. So, Very excited for that. And we are also lucky enough to, I don't know how interested you guys are in the deep history of our live Mo Freedom Foundation programming, but it would not have been possible without Ernie. Ernie is a friend of mine from Istanbul and a friend of John's from college. You guys? Istanbul. Istanbul. Uh, my, oh. ten, my 10 <laughs> Istanbul days. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't even know John had spent time in Istanbul. But it was Ernie who put John and I together. And I'm certainly pleased with how that has gone. So Ernie, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hello to everyone. My name is Ernie Piper. I am an author published two books. One of them was a travel guide that I researched myself, and it's about the Balkans, Turkey, and the Caucasus. And the second book was a memoir about my time living in Istanbul. And I currently blog betterinvinyl.wordpress.com. And currently, I've just moved to the UK, so it's a lot about that. There's a lot of interesting stories, not at all related to oil or geopolitics at all. But more pertinent to this discussion, I did used to work at an oil and gas magazine, and I retained contacts from that time. And I'm here to hopefully lend a little bit of perspective to the conversation as well. And I'm, I'm sure Ernie will do that very well. The thing that I think everybody realizes, oh, uh, also we have a live chat going. Uh, so if you have questions for us, please chime in there. We will try to deal with them. So the thing about the oil market generally, I think people understand that things are changing. People understand that things are very different now, but I think that gets very wrapped up in renewable energy and assumptions about what's going to happen when we have driverless cars or electric cars or solar or wind. And don't get me wrong, that is a huge factor in what is changing in the oil market today, but it's also a lot more than that. There's been a tremendous shift um, in sort of the weight of oil production, oil export, this, that, and the other thing that has really changed, changed the whole dynamic in a very deep way that isn't fully understood, I think because a lot of people are invested in not understanding exactly what has happened. So just uh, Also, to be fair, it is excruciatingly boring a lot of the time to talk and think about how <laughs> oil comes out of the ground and where it goes. I completely understand why people would want to tune out. <laughs> that's a that, that's that's a good point because of the the layers of complexity. Like it is it is insane. I don't think we'll be talking about the the publication that Ernie and I think Ernie and I both worked for. But the reason that I I would not call myself an expert in this at all, but I would say that after spending three years, you know, I, I more or less worked as a freelance oil industry analyst analyst yeah. analysis. Yes, analysisist for about three years and what became very clear was the way that this boredom is kind of weaponized it becomes a sort of layers of expertise that that make it hard to really dive in to seeing what what is actually going on because it's at the same time it is tremendously tremendously complex even the buzzwords you hear about sort of fracking or you know shale oil or like, like none of these things actually mean what the pop culture vision of what it means is. And we're not going to go into tremendous detail on that today because honestly, I don't think any of us are fully equipped to do that. But it's very hard to pull this all together and see the big picture. But I think what I and I think Ernie have been able to do by 
plowing through this stuff that can seem boring to many. I actually found it kind of fascinating just because of the amount of money and power that is involved in it. But I think Ernie and I have can sort of see the larger picture here because we have spent years looking at this. And the larger picture is it's tremendously complex. And I think that ramifying complexity, that building complexity is actually a big part of it because since the oil crisis in the 70s, people panicked. I don't think people quite recall, uh, certainly none of us, because none of us were alive, what an incredible impact Saudi Arabia and I believe Iran and uh, some other countries, OPEC more generally, mm -hmm. choice not to supply the U.S. market for a bit. Just how, inc what an incredible impact that had. Gas lines, this, that, and the other thing. And it also created, I think, uh, almost a, a sort of pathology in U.S. foreign policy thinking that I think we're very interested in doing away with this assumption that the United States must be incredibly invested in the Middle East to make sure that that sort of thing never happens again. That's a really negative effect of the oil crisis, but a positive effect of the oil crisis, I suppose, depending on, I would say positive, perhaps if you're more environmentally minded, like my two conversation partners, you wouldn't think so. But a positive effect was the amount of money and time and effort that was put in to maybe three strands. Developing sources in as many places as possible. The list of oil countries that you have now is just, it's extraordinary. I mean, you can, you're, we're extracting oil essentially everywhere. Technology, this is what we're talking about, you know, whether you're talking about fracking or vertical drilling or just going deeper, further, farther out there. I mean, it's pretty much been unrelenting technological change for about 40 years. And also there's efficiency. Efficiency is a much bigger part of this than is normally acknowledged. Just people having new requirements for what an air conditioner, how much energy air conditioner can use has made a tremendous, tremendous difference and has changed the oil market out of all recognition even before we get into this, this environmental utopia that's supposedly coming down the line. So what we've finally seen is we've finally seen these 40 years of technological changes and expansion of supply and this, that, and the other thing. We have finally seen it take effect and take dramatic effect since 2014. In 2014, sort of all of these things, it's depending on who you read. I mean, there's a lot of people who are very invested in this shale revolution, which absolutely is a big shift, a big sort of paradigm shift of technological change. Well, but it's I not just it, that. It's also the thing that's restored the U.S.'s status as one of the world's top producers. Exactly. The shale exactly. revolution. Exactly. It's a huge, it's a huge, huge deal. If you want to talk more about that, that's, that, that'd be great. The thing that I'm emphasizing is it's not just, it's not just envir the envir environmental shifts, new drive, new car technologies. It's not just even the shale revolution. It is something that's been going on for 40 years and that was sort of masked because of skyrocketing demand from China. And in 2014, oil prices kind of fell off a cliff. Ernie, you want to talk about shale oil for? Oh gosh, would I? <laughs> so for maybe those the listeners who aren't familiar, shale oil is the stuff that comes out of big deposits of shale. This is where fracking comes in. We run down a little tube deep underground and put water and silicon and a couple of other chemicals. It's actually a pretty closely guarded secret what exactly goes in there, but the added pressure cracks the shale down there, and then we can slurp up any petrochemicals and hydrocarbons that come up from there. And this is such a big deal because it's allowed the United States in particular and Canada as well, along with other alternative drilling technologies like dealing with tar sands. 
Exactly. Suddenly, yeah. It's just the shift that it has had. If you, you know, for those watching along at home, it's actually fascinating the Google oil production for the United States. And what's interesting is that the United States was Saudi Arabia for the first time. It was half. Saudi Arabia for a very long time, yeah. yes. But uh, Saudi overtook us in what? Uh, 70s. 70s? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the, the I mean, the, the oil industry started in Pennsylvania. It got bigger in California and Texas. Yes, California. A lot of people don't realize. And it was, it was huge. It was huge until the sort of the mid-20th century. If you look at the graph, so what happened is a lot of these old sources got depleted and started producing less. So our production peaked at around 10 million barrels or thereabouts in the 70s. This year, maybe even this month, depending on how you measure it, we have now surpassed that again because of the full, not just shale or, or fracking, because of the full range of technological advancement that we've gone through over the past 40 years, we've now surpassed that. And people are even talking about the figure they use is million barrels a day. So in the 70s, we were at sort of 10 million barrels a day. We'd fallen down, I think, to seven, you know, six or seven by the early 2000s, million barrels a day. We're definitely back at 10 now, and we might even hit 11 million barrels a day of oil produced this year, which is uh, kind of extraordinary and has had an incredible impact on the oil market. Yes. You guys mind if I if I uh, dial this back a bit for a second? Absolutely. Uh, Go ahead, John. I think we ought to lay out at the beginning of this whole thing just exactly what we're talking about, which is that, <laughs> <laughs> which is that for the entire history of oil use, we thought that oil was going to be a limited resource that we were going to hit oil at some point. Yes. Uh, and that at that point, oil was going to become exponentially more expensive. And because of the price increase, demand was going to drop and we were going to stop using it. So what ended up happening in the world that exists as we know it is that we hit peak oil prices around 08, 09. In the United States, it was, it was getting towards $5 a gallon. In the rest of the world, it was much more expensive. And prices bottomed out around 2015. And now they're slightly up again in today's world. But what it looks like, and maybe the thesis of this show is that there is so much available oil because of the new techniques that we were just talking about, like hydraulic fracturing, the extraction of oil from tar sands, and deep water deposits. There may be more oil in the earth than we'll ever actually use as a civilization. And it may be the case that oil prices are never going to go up again, which is, I think, we're going to I do want to qualify. I do, I do want to qualify that. I think what I am very confident of, that I think I've, I've managed to beat the market on for the past four years or so, is that... Oil prices will not be going on for the will not be going up for the next decade. I mean, this is we're, we're not going to see a quick return to the salad days. Ten years from now, twenty years from now, who knows? I mean, maybe we'll be all be flying to Mars all the time, and rocket fuel will will create this incredible demand. Or maybe all of a sudden, everybody in all fifty four African countries is going to develop the driving habits of the suburban U.S. citizen. These things could happen. But barring truly science fictional out there ideas, which become very, very possible, yeah, I do not anticipate the oil price getting anywhere near what was what was what it used to be, what it was in 2014, for at least the next decade or so. No, I think that's a good. So hold on, sir. I'm contributing to the show here. Uh, um, well, let, let me let me actually say. So, there's a great book that I'd recommend to everybody. You know, I've forgotten the name, but I haven't forgotten the author. It's Daniel Jurgen, and I think it's the Prize, perhaps. And it's a history of the oil industry from 
Rockefeller and Standard Oil all the way through, unfortunately, I think at this point up until 1995 or something like that, or maybe it's 2005. But what's fascinating from that is every 10 years, the sentiment in the oil industry switches completely. So for 10 to 15 years, everybody operates under the assumption that they're going to run out of it and everything, you know, this is the last bit of oil. What are we going to do? And then for 10 to 15 years following that, everybody operates on the assumption that, oh gosh, it's cheaper than water. We're never going to run out. That, that, that. So this is, I mean, this, and we're in the midst of a shift towards the oil is cheaper than water. bit. And I think we're actually at just the beginning of that era, which makes a tremendous amount of difference for all petro states you know, geopolitics, this, that, and the other thing. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, having read that book, I don't want to go overboard in that direction either. You know, I don't want to be making the, the same mistake. So it is very possible that, you know, 15, 20 years from now, we'll find ourselves back in a peak oil situation. I think probably you guys would be big fans of, and I would actually, I think at this point, it's 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 weird for me to say something that's environmentalist, but I actually think that's pretty... <laughs> Through, uh, like, we're in a situation where actually through regulatory intervention, it might make sense to bring about a sort of artificial peak oil issue. It might make sense. I mean, that's that's something I'm I'm cautiously curious about. But unless it's regulatory, I don't see getting anywhere near the the sort of peak oil mindset that we were in. Mm -hmm. Probably, I mean, honestly, probably not in our working lives. But of course, I want to be, I want to be careful about going... uh, further out there, you know, forecasting uh, that far. But I think what but I think the point of this chat is that I don't think people's perceptions have quite absorbed just how incredible the shift has been already. So I don't think, you know, while we who have a little more of a sense of what's going on might be going might already be in the in the overcompensation and you know oil is going to be cheap forever a bit i think the majority of the world is still functioning as if we're in a peak oil world as if we're at a point where we're going to need to worry about running out yeah so i think as we go on i think we've kind of laid out the thesis and i think rob's certainly the the ardent defender of said thesis so bring up some maybe objections reasons why oil prices might increase and uh rob will shoot them down as they as we go right <laughs> So I think the first thing to dispense with is a a confluence of two different forces. First is rising demand. Uh, We know that Chinese demand is slowing. Indian demand is on the rise. We can only expect higher demand out of Africa, out of some parts of South America. I imagine what you'd say your objection to that is that supply is huge. doesn't matter how much we increase demand. We can't increase demand enough. For everybody who's listening, I'm housebreaking a pig is a favorite of my girlfriend's parents. So if you hear, <laughs> you hear grunting, that's what's going on over here. I was um, kind of uh, suspicious of that, so good to know. Yeah, the sound that's coming coming through. The objection would be that supply is huge, and we've got enough supply in the pipe, you know, in the future pipeline, to be able to deal with whatever increase in demand we've got right now. And what I'd say there is, well, maybe. Uh, the big the big thing that we use to talk about our available increase in supply, at least in the United States, is that we have a huge fracking backlog. Yeah. That is, but when the Saudis endeavored to lower the price of oil starting a few years ago, a bunch of fracking wells went offline. So there's a lot of fracking supply that's not being used right now and that we could start to use if demand went up. But, and this is the final objection of this little 
thing of objections is that fracked wells are super front loaded. So those might get through a year, a year and a half of production, but then you'd actually have to develop new wells and that's a much longer process. So, all right. So I was looking at the BP energy outlook for 2030 and most of the recorded demand and expected demand for world oil supplies is like 80% of it is coming from the developing world. So the demand is going to be absolutely enormous. I mean, you know, six, seven, eight times what we're currently, like what Western nations and the U.S. is is looking for, the developing world is going to be looking for much, much more of that and very, very soon. And second of all, John, you're, you're right in that fracked wells are quite front-end loaded and some in the industry are starting to wonder about the long-term potential of, of that kind of technology. I'm pretty conscious of the limitations of fracking or whatnot. I actually, my limitation, my concern is less physical. I have some friends in the oil industry who, well, you know, they're in the oil industry, so perhaps I shouldn't trust them. Perhaps not that they, not that they lie to me, but that they, that they, they're very, you know, in a particular worldview that I think I'll discuss at some point. And they actually think that the, there's a little more longevity to the, these wells. And there's like sort of a lot, a lot of potential usage for these wells, because at this point, you know, the, with the technology, a lot of it's, you know, proprietary, a lot of it's, we're still talking about a world where it's only really been applied in the continental United States. You know, maybe you can correct me on and that. And Australia. And Australia. There you are. A country with a lot of legal affinities and, and geopolitical affinities. So we haven't even started looking at depleted wells or or, or what have you in, you know, wells. Yeah, that that's true. We're, we're very much still at the beginning of this exactly uh, the shale revolution and we don't know necessarily how long the wells wells will last but certainly given the last three years in terms of just production and not just oil mostly gas actually yes. mostly natural gas it, it it is affected though because when we're talking about the price of oil whether it's ever going to go skyrocket again most in the energy industry are really pushing gas technology gas like everybody expects because of climate change, that renewables are going to be the future at some point, solar, wind, geothermal, whatever. But there just isn't enough, the technology isn't there to make that viable on a large enough scale yet. So gas is going to be the bridge fuel in between oil and- That's much more environmental. Yeah, it's considered a a clean fuel by the- IEA, one, one of those actors. Yeah, yeah, EIA or something like that. And it's and it's and while it it's not like it burns at a net neutral to the environment in terms of carbon t- cost, but it is a lot cleaner burning than oil, and certainly a lot cleaner burning than coal. Mm. And the other thing to consider is that in terms of shale, gas is what we're getting mostly, natural mm. gas, and yeah. it's much cheaper to get out of the ground. Like for instance, Saudi needs oil to be at about $70 a barrel globally to break even. But for us in the States producing gas, we only need it to be about 40. Our break even price is a lot lower, which means we can weather the market a lot easier. And it makes gas a more sensible technology to invest in if you can deal with those kind of stresses of the market a lot easier. And what's fascinating is watching how these, you know, whether we're talking coal, natural gas, much more natural gas sort of cannibalizing coal, but all of these, even renewables, these are all different sort of sets of technologies and, 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 and they cannibalize each other. I mean, you've got buses running on natural gas rather than 
rather than uh, oil products. You know, and that's not huge yet, though. There's there's not a lot of huge public transit projects. But, there, but there's a lot of private transit that. that runs on natural gas. But there's a lot of potential to that. And actually, I think it might be, I don't know if it's unique to the United States, but it's, it's a, a big factor of oil demand, not gas demand, but oil demand in the United States is actually home heating. That is very quickly, that is more quickly being cut out by natural gas. So yeah, but anyway, they, we're perhaps getting a little too far into the weeds here. But the the, the point with the, the sort of well depletion and whatnot, I, I feel like that is probably overblown. I think what is not quite as overblown when we're talking about critiquing the sort of shale tight oil market or whatnot, is actually the financial the financial aspects. I think uh, the scarcity premium, John, I think you were sort of talking about that earlier. It's just sort of everybody still assumes that peak oil is right around the corner and we're going to go from $60 a barrel of oil back up to 120 where it was in 2008 or you know at least over 100 That's going to happen tomorrow. And I feel like there are a lot of players in the oil market, specifically the folks who are financing this, who believe that that's going to happen or are still operating on the assumption that that's going to happen. And it's not. That is an issue. So at a certain point, the banks who have been eager to sort of make it rain for all of these extraction companies might get to a point where they're like, hey, you know, we were making these loans and investing in this on the assumption that oil was going to go back up to 100, but it's still down at 60. And actually, if you're talking about natural gas, I think the natural gas markets are historically very low and haven't even come back from a fall in 2008, if I recall specifically. So that actually, that is interesting to me, like whether or not people will continue to bankroll this. That was a big concern for me when under this last uh, oil price rise, I was like, oh gosh, are we getting to the point? I read, I was half convinced by a lot of sort of commentary saying that, well, maybe these oil companies aren't going to be able to get the necessary financing anymore. And then, of course, oil dropped by $10 last week. So I felt vindicated. So that is kind of interesting. But there's just so much out there. And like, is there a possibility? People talk about this a lot, that the last three years has led to a collapse of investment in new resources. People talk about that a lot. So they argue that maybe next year or four or five years from now, we're really going to get back to a point where we don't have enough again. Because we need to have people developing all these absurdly expensive things like offshore Brazilian through the salt flat stuff or the Canadian tar sands. That's the argument, but I'm, I, I do have my doubts about it because there's just so much, so many mega projects. The people don't talk about it as much in the fracking shale stuff, but I think Ernie brought up tar sand in Canada. The past five years for Alberta, Canada have been horrible. Uh, sorry, so, since 2014, so the past four years have been horrible for Canada because these massive, massive tar sands in Canada are much more expensive to extract than what was. I mean, you know, I think maybe they're viable at $60 a barrel of oil. They were not at 25 or 40. So they're, I mean, they're screwed. But now that there's so much out there in Canada, in the U.S. Uh, that that is just waiting to come on screen with higher prices. So I, I do question whether we're going to reach a point where the extraction thing becomes the lack of extraction becomes problematic. I mean, yeah, no. I mean, like I said, I get the idea that we have a lot of a lot of production or unused production in the bank. But and again, I'm not. I am not the oil expert in this conversation. I, I got what I I have right now from reading BP reports and and gas prices. <laughs> Uh, or oilprice.com stuff. But if we really have been slacking off on development of new projects since what, 
2014, 2014 or so. And if oil stays at the price it is right now, we could foreseeably continue to slack off on the development of new projects for three or four years. I'm not saying that we won't eventually hit some equilibrium where we yeah. generating new supply with new demand, but you don't see the possibility for a you know temporary two three year spike. Absolutely, I, I, I think I think there is there's a real. I think we're, honestly, I think we're in a temporary spike now. Um, <laughs> this is the spike. This what, is what are, we, what are we at right now? Fifty. Uh, we know we've made Actually, it back no. up into the mid sixties, right. uh, the, low, the lower sixties. You know, of course, it depends on whether you're talking about WTI, you're talking about Brent, but probably something we don't need to get into. Mm -hmm. yeah. But well, yes. there is another uh, important factor to talk about when we're talking about specifically the oil price is that um, Russia and OPEC right now uh, are in talks to create some enormous oil. Cartel group, cartel yeah. basically, and the deal should be figured out by the end of 2018. And so, as I understand it, the market is going to be, the price of oil is going to be competing against uh, cheaper energy sources elsewhere from the United States and OPEC in combination with Russia. And uh, while the future of that enormous cartel does seem like it could bump oil prices quite high maybe even over a hundred dollars in 2019, 2020 and in the future. I think that a lot of investors worldwide understand that the future is not in oil. And I think that that's, that's key. And I think that also shows what a different world we're in right now. In 2008, in 2012, in 2000, in 1985, if there had been the slightest rumor, the, the, just the slightest inkling that Russia would team up with OPEC to control oil prices, we would be right now, even if it, was, it wasn't supposed to happen for a year, we'd right, right now be talking about $250 for a barrel of oil. That's absolutely um, true. And the fact that we're not does show, yeah, you're right, how much things have changed. That's a good yeah. point, Rob. It's extraordinary. And also the, the Russia and OPEC thing, this, if they're going to form a, a super cartel, is kind of just a rebranding of what they've been trying desperately to do since November of, I believe it was 2016. Russia and OPEC got together to cut oil production. We're right now in the 1970s oil crisis manufactured by OPEC. We're experiencing it right now. And that's what got it from $20, you know, from I guess the absolute low point was about, I don't know what the index was, but I think it was around 25, 30 for a barrel of oil. All of that has managed to just eke us up. I think two weeks ago, we, we touched 70 and the entire oil industry press was just, oh, bonanza, bonanza, and then fell back $10. So, you know, all of this, this, this is the oil crisis that OPEC has manufactured. We're living through it right now. And it's oil costs $60 a barrel. So yeah, I mean, that's an indication of just how much has shifted. And also another thing worth mentioning is how many other things in the past year, recent years, Nigeria has had, I mean, Nigeria always has trouble with attacks on its uh, production facilities because it's mm -hmm. just such a desperately unequal place. And so Nigeria production was hurt seriously at some point in the past two years. I'm not sure if it's online again. Libya, I think is coming on full stream, but I think at some point last year it was almost completely shut down because of the ongoing fighting there. In that world, prior to 2014, one of those events would have shot oil prices over $100 a barrel, for sure, very easily.
What's extraordinary, I think we're all kind of focusing and following um, the, the issues in Venezuela and like what a tragedy that is. But from an oil market, but you know, once again, if we were in that old world, all the headlines would be about, holy shit, because I believe Venezuela, Venezuela's oil production has halved in the past year. It's way down. Something like that, yeah. yeah. I think both for technical and financing reasons. So Venezuela is historically a huge supplier of the United States and, and their production being cut in half. I mean, wow. I mean, and it's, you know, that's not what we talk about. We talk about how nasty Maduro is. We don't talk about gas lines in the United States. So it is a very, very different world from what it used to be. Will there be spikes? I, I, think, I think there will, but whether those spikes, I think we might be in, I think we're in a spike. I think we were talking, John, about how there was this rise from 25 to, to 60 or whatnot, and it, it was because of a perfect storm of factors that would have just blown out the oil industry in any prior prior time period. Yeah, I mean, so if anybody in the audience doesn't, doesn't have an idea of the full membership of OPEC, the people, I mean, the countries in OPEC right now that are experiencing supply diminishing events, Nigeria, Venezuela, Iraq, Iran, Qatar, Libya, and then outside of OPEC, but still high producers, Mexico and Brazil. I don't know if you've seen Mexico's oil production, but it's down an incredible amount because the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, used Pemex, the state oil company, as a source of funding and never actually reinvested in Pemex. Um, so they, Mexico, Mexico! One of the world's top producers of oil, it refines like 2% of its own oil. It sells to the United States and then it sells it back to Mexico. So Mexico's got some of the highest gas in the world, uh, at least at least in Central America. They're, they're high for Mexicans. Mexicans hate them anyway. But so the, point <laughs> being, uh, the point being that despite that, OPEC is still technically in control of the vast majority of the world's oil production. And even though OPEC's trying to get Russia into the deal... And even though the Saudis are very interested in increasing the per barrel price of oil on the global market, there's so much instability within the group and so little ability to actually cut production for those countries that are in trouble that desperately need to sell oil to prop up their regimes. Mm. That Rob, I think you would make the argument that despite all of that stuff about OPEC, they have almost zero ability to control the world price. Well, well what's extraordinary is, so for all of time, OPEC was kind of a, was actually so OPEC's actually a more serious organization than it has ever been because it was always sort of a standard joke that sort of OPEC would you know release this dictate you know we're all going to cut production we're all going to do this and there would you know be you know an initial effect oil prices would go up it, da, da, da. but then the cheating would within the second by the second month everybody would be cheating everybody would be trying to take advantage of this little bump Actually, they are terrified enough. They are frightened enough that with this uh, clampdown on production since uh, the fall of 2016, the estimates are that they supposedly, like the consensus is, and this shocked me because that was not what I was expecting. I made a video talking about how it wouldn't happen. They've actually been really good about sticking to their quotas this time around. Saudi Arabia has actually cut more than it has agreed to. And also, I mean, with... Well, less than it used to be, but, you know, it's certainly still with OPEC. Saudi Arabia can choose to deal with everybody's cheating just by cutting its own production. But, yeah, I mean, they've done, they have been so much better at sticking to this than they've ever been. And the effect is, once again, nil. 
It's uh, true, but at the same time, there's only so much that they can cut production and start losing money overall. Now they're in the unenviable, unenviable position of wanting to keep oil prices high because they're not breaking even, but at the same time wanting to cut production because because they need to keep oil. I mean, it's it's just a it's just a bad thing for them. I mean, the last couple of years has been not great for the Saudis. I mean, their sovereign wealth fund has dropped from uh seven or eight hundred billion dollars of just like there's their extra money and it's less than half they've got 300 billion left and they're they're hemorrhaging money and the fact that they'd be willing to make you know opec push together not that opec is just saudi of course but the fact that they're joining with russia and that it's not and like that's like their, their their plea. It says a lot about how how much those states depend on their production and how fragile their position is. Yes, absolutely. The, the Saudi Arabia in particular is in this terrible place where I talked a lot about Saudi Arabia, and they. they oh, uh, have you? I had no idea. No, exactly. <laughs> and that's why I'm glad I'm doing this because I think it emphasizes just how you know just how bad a position they are in. Sort of this new reality of the oil market. So they're in this. Terrible, there's maybe a bit of digression, I'll try and do it quickly. They're trying to sell a big chunk, well, not a big chunk, they're trying to sell 5% of their national oil company called Saudi Aramco. And in order to sell that, you know, they've been telling everybody for years, there's no question, everybody agrees that this is probably the largest company on earth. But they've been telling people for years that, oh, it's a $3 trillion company or it's a $10 trillion company. So they want to, they want to make, hundred billion dollars off of this. And so I guess the math in order to do that, they need a valuation of to make a hundred billion dollars from selling 5% of their company, they need a valuation of $2 trillion. But the valuation of their state oil company is directly linked to the price of oil. So this is, you know, their plan to save their country is to get that hundred billion dollars from selling off 5% of this company, but they can't get that $100 billion if the oil price isn't higher. And yet, you know, it, it's, it's they're, in, they're in a really desperate position. And I think we'll learn more about that with the Aramco IPO that's supposed to happen in 2018, but I have the hunch might be pushed to 2019. Might even just end up being Russia and China buying a chunk, which would be important if Middle East oil was as important as it used to be, which it's not. Did you have other uh, objections, uh, Jaron? Or... Well, all right, so that we've gone through the three most serious ones. And I think what we've said is that we're probably expecting, we're either in the oil spike or we're probably expecting oil spike maybe in five, 10 years, and probably a, a quite temporary one. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're about agreed on that. Mm-hmm. Well, then the other, the other argument for higher oil prices, especially before we get into any environmental regs or anything like that, is that some combination of Western power and the interests of big oil have conspired time and again to create conflict zones in the world that put the price of oil. So if we look at the war in Iraq that resulted in an oil spike in the 2000s, the prime beneficiaries, uh, or at least the prime beneficiaries among those who were involved in the creation of that war were folks who had a whole lot of stock in uh, Halliburton and in Texas oil companies that had interests in the Middle East who also happen to have interest in the White House. What do you think, Rob? We got, what, a couple of conflicts blew in the Middle East. We already got one that we started in, or well, that we helped to foment in Libya. 
we've got a president who's threatening Venezuela because for some reason a bad government is a reason for perhaps a coup or an invasion. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's right. opportunities. Yeah. 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 A bad government, you know, so let's turn a, turn another mostly developed country into Afghanistan like we did in Syria. You know, it's not, Hey, be great for the oil price, right? Uh, you know, well, that's the extraordinary thing is that, yeah, an invasion of Venezuela would once again in the pre 2014 world, send oil to the stratosphere. But the Venezuelans have already done half the job themselves. It is extraordinary to live in a world where the United States produces more oil than either Russia or Saudi Arabia. But that's the world that we live in. So Venezuela is huge as a, you know, if it loses another million barrels a day, which I think would mostly be the end of its its production, then yeah, the price will probably go up to 80 bucks for a month or two, the ability, you know, well, I, also I'm not, I'm, I've always been more of a war for war guy than a war for oil guy, as far as your, your particular explanation of uh, the Iraq war. I think it's more military industrial complex than, than sort of Dick Cheney uh, manipulating things. Well, to be fair, Halliburton has interest on both sides of that line. Absolutely, absolutely. But the ability of any geopolitical actor to impact the oil price in this new environment is extremely limited. What, what actually is kind of fascinating is that the United States is now occupying the position that Saudi Arabia used to occupy. The United States is the swing oil producer in the world market. That's the services that we used to require Saudi Arabia for was that they would dampen a oil market that was running too hot or they would constrict supply to, to preserve demand. The United States can serve that purpose now. So all of this, actually, the, this, the whole thesis of the thing, if the United States decided to limit its production in some way, then yeah, then it's we can go back to the 2014 world. But it's really hard to see that happening. And while you guys might want that to happen, I certainly, because I, uh, as you know, from my Saudi Arabia fixation, I am very happy to see the Middle East and the sort of the power of the Gulf states dramatically diminished. I think, I think that is a great thing for the world. Uh, well, you know, if the United States and plus Canada with, with their fracked and tar sands production mm -hmm. is starting to occupy the position of Saudi Arabia or just the Middle East generally, mm -hmm. you know, say, say um, some enlightened liberal decides to cut production or Donald Trump through a protectionist or because of a protectionist outlook decides mm -hmm. to increase oil and gas tariffs in the United States. Uh, what do you think about us facing a coalition of the willing, Russia and Saudi Arabia invading us to secure their oil supplies? <laughs> you know, I shouldn't laugh because honestly, that when I sit back and do my far out forecasting, like what, I, what I'm most concerned about is a coalition of the willing against the United States. Not necessarily in a military. It's hard for me to imagine a military one in, in my lifetime. But, you know, not during the Trump administration, but if we continue on the path set not just by Trump, but by Bush and Obama and Trump for another 20, 30 years, I think we will be in a position where with the, 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 climate, the climate thing is a great example of that. The United States, if it's going to continue with its sort of hegemonic power and whatnot, needs to be leading these conversations or at least present at the table. And with the climate, Paris climate change thing, as toothless as it is, the fact that the United States is no longer there, I mean, that's a coalition of the willing against the United States right now. It is an international organization, I don't know if it's really called an organization, but it's a, an association that is 
organized around controlling every aspect, even though it's toothless now, you know, significant aspects of every economy in the world, trade in the world, geopolitics in the world, and the United States has decided to not be there. That right there is a sort of coalition against the willing. So I'm sorry, maybe, you know, but no, it's not going to be a military attack. Well, I think this becomes the point of transition in the show. Oil spec five, 10 years, probably even if we managed, if some nefarious actor in control of the United States government managed to foment oil wars in two different countries, we still probably wouldn't drive the price up much. I think that's kind of the decision of this first half of the show. And now we're moving on to, for the benefit of the audience. All right. So oil is going to be low, except for maybe some small spike in a few years. What's that mean? What's that mean for petrostates, especially petrostates in precarious situations like Venezuela? or like Saudi Arabia is maybe going to be in a couple of years. Um, sorry, I got pig problems. But uh, that's what we're moving on to right now. Uh, and actually, I think we had an audience question, which was from Buximus. Of all the states that need a higher oil price to balance their budget, which one is running out first, Saudi Arabia, Russia, et cetera, and which one has the darkest future out ahead of them? Oh, that is a great question. That is a great question. I would say Saudi Arabia just because of the incredible fall in prestige that's coming. I mean, Russia's still going to have nukes. Russia's still going to have a number of things. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not is, is, is not going to have as much. That's my pick for the biggest loser. Mm, yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Russia and, and uh, Europe are still pretty tied up economically, and um, that relationship is currently helping both of them out a lot. And Saudi's entire economy is oil. That's it. That's all they have. <laughs> and and once that's gone, they're done. Yeah. Now, I mean, the, the other thing to note with, with Saudi is, so the Russian economy is weak and almost weak enough and dependent enough on oil to, to call Russia a petrostate. But what Russia has in its back pocket is traditional Russian authoritarianism, nationalism, <laughs> and militarism to help them, to help basically Putin prop up his own regime. And we, I mean, we've already seen the effectiveness of that trifecta of things because Russia's already an oligarchic kind of dystopian place, but Putin's got, I don't know, what, 70% approval ratings? He's very, yeah. really, very popular. Yeah. Whereas the Saudis, the ruling family's ability to maintain the control over the population is even more dependent upon the petrodollar. You'd say, okay, well, really, no, I mean, the Saudis depend on Wahhabism. You know, they have this religious element to what's putting up the regime, but the way they use that religious element is through massive investments in stuff like Wahhabi schools abroad, Wahhabi schools in Saudi Arabia, and the under-the-table funding of radical Wahhabist movements abroad. So the minute the petrodollar falls out, there's not a whole lot there to keep the Saudi regime in place. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, like... What just, Rob, the, what, what's his name? The new popular prince who keeps doing these publicity campaigns in the United States, he's got some plan for the, the transition of the Saudi economy, right? It's mostly, well, first off, he thinks he's going to turn the place into Dubai, which is ridiculous. You can't do that with Saudi Arabia's population. And his other big plan is the Saudi Aramco IPO that I talked about earlier, whose price they're desperately trying to prop up. So yeah, Saudi Arabia is, uh, is a bit of a mess. I think Martin Pierre Frenet asked an interesting question that I just saw. Is it possible that one of the interests in driving oil prices down is to reduce the profitability of alternate green energy sources? Well, I mean, I can take the first half of that, which is that the Saudis started an effort, Rob, what, 20, 2014? When did they open the floodgates? 2013, I would imagine. 2013? Okay. And then they continued it 
all the way through 2016. Yeah. So, um, so Mar Martin Pierre Frenette, the Saudis opened the floodgates. They sold oil at below their own cost of production for, well, maybe not below their own cost of production, but below their way below their break-even point for, for quite a long time. And the reason they did it was that they felt threatened by the mass increase in U.S. production through hydraulic fracturing. And what they wanted to do was to drive those new wells out of business by lowering the oil price below what it cost to extract from those wells. And they temporarily put a lot of those wells offline. But as Rob informed me, uh, I think yesterday or the day before on Facebook, they've ended that effort. And those wells are coming back online because the price of oil is back up. So the original intent of driving those oil prices down wasn't to get rid of uh, green energy, but to get rid of uh, hydraulically fracked new oil. Yeah, I mean, the technology, like I was saying, for most renewables just isn't there yet on a big enough scale to be able to... I mean, God knows how long it's much longer it's going to take, and so much money. <laughs> I mean, 10, 20, 30 years even. I, I mean, I, I read somewhere that shale oil production is going to peak in the 2040s. So I'd imagine it would be at least that long before renewables can even compete on the global market, because right now it's just little dinky projects here and there. So I think that, that was actually something I was quite concerned with. Like once again, I said not environmentalist, but I am actually very interested in green energy coming on stream, mostly because I, mostly because of geopolitics. I don't like the power that the Gulf countries have. And I was concerned. I thought that this new era of oil prices would derail the development of green technology, green energy. And that I'm pleased to report that that is not the case. I mean, who knows? I, you know, First off, to Martin Pierre's uh, question, oil companies in the United States, sort of the nefarious actors here, are not a fan of what is happening. They are not a fan of uh, Saudi Arabia's choice to flood the market. You can make an argument that actually some of the bigger production companies are not a fan of all these smaller sort of wildcatting uh, shale folks who've been driving the price down. Uh, they are just as impacted by this as anybody else. So the idea of them putting together this as sort of a strategy against against renewable technology doesn't really, um, uh, that doesn't, that I don't buy that, um, mostly because as Martin Pierre well knows, and, and many people do from watching this channel, I, my default conspiracy theory is stupidity. Um, I don't think there's a nefarious plot somewhere. I don't think there's somebody somewhere pulling all the strings. I just think people are stupid and greedy. I mean, it can sometimes look like it's nefarious. But I, I did have a real concern. I was con seriously worried that the cheaper oil prices would derail everything, but I think we've done a fairly good job of sort of beating environmentalism into people's heads over the over the past couple decades. I think a lot of the subsidy regimes for renewable stuff has continued, and actually, excitingly, solar power, while as Ernie was referring to, we're nowhere near the point where like solar and wind can provide like baseline power production, and I don't want to think of this gets excessively nerdy, but the main problem with renewables right now is the lack of storage technologies. Yes. I mean, massively right. larger storage to handle because so both solar and wind are intermittent rather than what they call, I believe, baseload stuff. You can't just turn on a switch and provide solar and wind power, so you need massive, massive storage. That's the main sort of problem. But even in the context of what we've been in of lower prices over the past four years, and this is actually perhaps a positive thing if people still believing in peak oil, even though it, the, the data doesn't justify it. Investment has continued. Solar power is still increasing exponentially. Wind power, I'm not sure so much about that. These are U.S. figures I'm talking about. 
but also worldwide as well. I think China and India, this is vital. While they're both still building a shit ton of coal plants, both also recognize that the screen technology is something that they need to be big into. Actually, I, oh gosh, I wish I had it at, at my fingers, but there was some oil company guy who was boasting about how many coal plants India was building. I was reading this a couple months back, and then I was like, really? That's, that's, that's the center. And then I Googled it, and India had apparently canceled half of its new coal plants. Um, so there's, I mean, the progress is continuing despite the fall in the oil prices, which is actually tremendously heartening because economically, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, but it's happening anyway, because I think people are really internalizing this whole climate change thing more than I have. So it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the continued viability of that stuff. I think it's more, more, I mean, there's, you know, something to be said about internalizing like a moral duty, but I think a lot of it is quite practical and that a lot of the countries who are investing a lot of money in renewables and renewables technology are some of the countries who are already some of the most affected by the really worst parts of climate change. Mm. I mean, you know, the tidal and coastal areas of India and Bangladesh is just going to get flooded and then nobody will have anywhere to live. <laughs> and what are you going to do when there's like a hundred million people who need to either internally or cross borders to migrate? Mm. It's a huge problem. And China's the same. You know, most of their population, though their middle class is growing hugely and growing very, very fast. A lot of the people there still live in, in, in poverty and in areas where they're really dependent on land. And investing in renewable energy is, and carbon neutral technology is just kind of makes sense. And they're anticipating that. There was one point I wanted to make. I think we're, we're now moving towards the, uh, I think we can... Just, we'll discuss environmental issues, which I know you guys are uh, all on fire for. But uh, there was one point that I wanted to discuss about, you know, on the topic of sort of greed and stupidity. Why is it exactly that that we're still locked into this sort of peak oil mentality? And you've obviously got the folks in petrostates who are very invested in this continuing narrative, but you've also got the oil companies in the U.S. and not just the oil companies, the folks there, but also people at banks, people at journalists, people who are tremendously invested in this sort of old pre-2014 petroleum world. You've got folks who are used to oil and petroleum and this, this product being this tremendously significant, really important thing that we all have to follow all the time. And it's becoming more commoditized. It is not a commodity. It will never be tin or copper or something like that. It'll never be that boring, but it's a lot more boring than it used to be. And there's a lot of people, not just at the oil companies, but at finance, in journalism, and finance and German journalism, who are really invested in oil being more interesting than it is right now. And it's always kind of fascinating because of the geopolitical ramifications, but it's if you're at a bank, you don't need five guys to manage the oil investments anymore. You need two guys. The people who've got their entire careers wrapped up in analyzing and investing in oil don't really want to concede that we're in a different world now. And that's why you can get, what's fascinating, if you Google oil prices right now, actually now most of this, this week, most of the stories will be about new collapse, this, that, and the other thing. But two weeks back when we were hitting 70, it was... New bull market, three-year highs, da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, of course, we're in three-year highs. But if you go back four years, 
<laughs> we're, we're nowhere near where the prices were four years ago. It's interesting, you know, just because just I was doing my due diligence for this episode, if you go to like oilandgasprice.com or like oil price, there's like a million websites that are dedicated to just talking about oil prices. And if you go to all of them, every one of their writers has like in the last five weeks, 10 articles about how oil prices are going to stay low. And those are all full of facts and figures and, uh, you know, oil company uh, predictions and, and whatever. And then everyone has two or three different editorials about like, but they might go up and it's full of no facts and just hopeful speculation. You know, if, <laughs> if, if, you know, if this and this and this and this and this, then maybe the, because they desperately, desperately want this to, to happen because it's been a great, it's been an extraordinary gravy train for a very long time. You've got, uh, you know, maybe uh, you have maybe countries that, you know, don't have a, a lot else going on, but they're willing to pour money into their sort of oil related business. I mean, it's, it's been gravy train for a lot of people in the developing world and the developed world. And a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that that gravy train for now anyway is over. I think that's got a lot to do with why, why things are just so detached from reality in most of the reporting. I, I, I think you're a little premature in saying that it's over. I mean, we still are producing 10 million barrels of oil per day. We're, we're going to have, and I mean, just in the United States, by when I say we there, I mean, globally, it's still like something like 100 million. It's, it's so to say that oil's done is a little bit um, facile. I think. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. You are, you are, you're absolutely right. But, okay, so I guess another good comparison would be agriculture, right? Um, I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing about the agricultural sector. Um, All right. Uh, let know, me give I, you, you, put, you put seeds in the ground, they come up eventually. Yes. I don't know how. That's how it works. I do know, like, oh, I know those are tennis balls, not apples. But I, I do know that I consume a lot of food myself every day. So do 7 billion other people. Um, and well, hopefully 7 billion other people. And uh, that's immensely significant. But the term I use is it's kind of commoditized, right? It's not sexy. There is no appleprice.com or agriculture. Actually, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is an agriculture.com. And I am sure that there is a um, Apple Price Daily or something like that. Because uh, it's the internet and everything you can imagine is on the internet. But the amount of time, energy, money um, that is invested in agriculture, a similarly essential, omnipresent aspect of our lives, the amount of energy, you know, the, you know if, if, if the price of corn spikes, it's unlikely that markets are going to crash worldwide. Um, but so what I'm saying is not that, of course, not that oil is over, that it's going to go away forever. I'm saying that the oil trading desk at a bank is going to need one guy instead of five. That's what I'm saying. And then like the, the it's at the margins that we're talking about here, but that margin is very large of uh, folks who were just whose whose career in prognosticating about oil has been sort of devalued dramatically. So yes, of course, oil is going to continue. Honestly, another thing, Saudi Arabia is going to be producing oil long after every shale company is bankrupt, long after Alberta and Canada has, has, has uh, shut up shop forever, Saudi Arabia will still be producing oil. Um, we need it for you know, plastics. We need it for uh, 
don't know, rocket fuel is one that's probably going to take a while to come up with something different for. Uh, and Saudi Arabia, this was another thing, the distinction, there's two, two ways to look at break-even price. There's the break-even price on like a country basis, on a country's budget. Saudi Arabia's break-even price is around $70 or even higher. It used to be much higher. You know, for them to be able to pay for their government, the price at which they can pay for their government and whatnot. But Saudi Arabia's price of extraction, which some people refer to as break-even price, is tiny. It's like, it's like $10, right? Yeah, like, the, like Saudi Arabia, the business of oil in Saudi Arabia is viable. You're still making a profit at $10 a barrel of oil. Of course, that profit is a lot smaller than what Saudi Arabia is used to. Um, so yeah, like so I just wanted to, yeah, we're not talking about the end of the oil market. We're not talking about, but so thank you for correcting my um, exaggeration there. That was, uh, well, I mean, the other thing to add there is we're going to start talking about renewables in a little while. And it's actually, it's pretty easy to imagine a world where all of our power, literally all of our power production comes from renewables and imagine getting there in 10 years. I mean, it'd take a huge investment in carbon, but we could get there in 10 years pretty easily. Just, just looking at current resources. Uh, a couple of, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not saying I'm not saying politically or whatever else. I'm saying you could produce enough solar panels, you could produce enough infrastructure. I'm saying if you had the whole world oriented towards, I'm just, this is just a starting point. But what you couldn't do is move all transportation and all of agriculture off of oil. Mm. Those are two things that are much harder to get off of because as somebody's mentioned in the chat, oil's energy density is so much higher than anything else we can do. So you know maybe you could move some population of the United States onto electric cars, but you're not going to be able to get everybody in India into a $37,000 Chevy Bolt or about the same price Tesla, what, Model 3? And, you know, you put 40 Tesla, you could put 200 Tesla batteries into every large ocean freighter that we have, and those will get it, you know, 100 miles off the coast of the United States. Those, those are vehicles that it's very hard to transition off of oil. And even harder is airplanes. And then just on the agriculture side, not not everybody necessarily knows, but just just you know hi, hippie lesson for the day. Uh, for almost the entire history of human existence, the way we got nutrients in the soil was we took the outputs of our bodies and of agriculture, so mostly manure and old plants, and we put it back into the fields. We don't do that anymore. The only way soil gets nutrients right now is through nitrogen that we extract phosphates, from gas. Right? and yeah, and phosphates. But the point is. Almost all of the nutrients and just, by the way, pesticides that we use to create the vast majority of the world's food supply right now comes from oil and natural gas wells. And unless we transition like back to a traditional method of farming where we take the night soil and we spread it on the fields, <laughs> we're not going to be able to transition off of mined and drilled it, fertilizer. Exactly. And it's lovely that there are people out there who actually do that and are living on organic farms or whatnot. The uncomfortable fact about the applicability about doing that society-wide is you'd probably need about 6 billion less people. No, what's actually, what's really interesting about it is traditional cross-planted uh, farming methods, like what the milpa they have here in Mexico, are meter by square meter more productive than industrial agriculture. The problem is, yeah, no, no, meter by meter, they are much more productive. The problem is you can't use machines. So you just need like 2 billion of that 6 billion people to be working in agriculture. Oh, so that's okay. So we can still have 7 billion people, but but you just of them have you to, need go to have back. like a third of them working on the farm. Oh, so a third of them just have to go back to being serfs. Well, it's I mean it's a much more interesting kind of farming than than, you know, mass monoplaning, but oh. uh 
Yeah, yeah, you'd need much more people farming. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't. I like I said, I don't know much about agriculture. Well, I mean, uh, if anybody wants to know, for example, here in Mexico, you plant corn, beans, squash, chilies, and then about 40 different plants, depending on what your altitude and latitude is. And you can, on a plot about the size of this room, which you guys can't see, but it's maybe like, I don't know, five meters by five meters. It's small. You can feed, feed a family for a year mm. on a plot, by that, a plot of that size. You just have to be doing it every day instead of working. So that's the point. You can't, we're not going to do that, whether or not we can. And that means we need petrochemical Just because industrialized agriculture depends on petrochemical fertilizer. Oil feeds most of the world. Yeah, exactly. Ernie did that in a hundred times less time than I did. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, we're, not, we're not talking about the end of oil here. We're talking about the end of oil as a super sexy market base of repressive petrostatum. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is... To an extent that it's not fully recognized, I do believe that is over. And, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the oil price could come back if, like I said, if all of Africa decides to start driving cars the way that U.S. citizens do. But whether Saudi Arabia will still be there is uh, in its current form. I would even say it's not an open question. I think it won't. Well, the other, the other thing with the, although demand is hugely increasing, it's just that hydraulic fracturing fracking is just way cheaper than oil production so and that's why people are willing to invest a lot more money in it because if it's just cheap to get the gas out of the ground then you don't have to waste all your money doing oil stuff so despite the fact that the demand in the developed world is increasing by a lot a lot of money is still going to be plowed into the gas stuff because it's already much cheaper the u.s is already switching over a lot of its electrical infrastructure to deal with gas as well so and storage is i think what is going to happen is that uh, storage is going to get a lot cheaper mostly uh, yeah i think a lot of the stuff that i read sort of assumes these incredible barriers of today that they're going to be permanent and that, that it's just not because even with the tiny proportion of u.s energy uses that are now in electric car batteries or i don't know tesla solar walls or whatever it's becoming dramatically larger exponentially larger and having that much more money and attention pointed towards this problem it means that there will be big breakthroughs i mean there are a few things that i'm it's more true. confident in than that jordan just sent me a study that was about how at mit they've developed they've made a huge breakthrough in a new battery and it's not and they figured out a way to make it much cheaper at scale but you know, obviously, they still got a lot more work to do. Yeah. It, but, you know, there's four or five promising projects like that going on. And only one of them will come to fruition 10 years from now, but it'll do the job. Well, yeah, but it's got to be one of them. I'd yeah. also like to briefly give my thanks to Jordan because he provided me a lot of the information and insight that made me sound halfway intelligent today. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of Jordan. Um, so I think we should, where we've been at this for an hour and a half, it's just breezed right by. We have, I, goodness. I think we should shift to the environmental consequences, which I think you guys are more invested in than I am. So we should perhaps shift to discussing that, and then I think we would answer questions for a bit. I've, whoever's worried about it in the chat, I'm saving up uh, good ones. All right, good stuff. Yeah. Hooray! Yeah. Environmental. I mean, take it away, greenies. Already, I've got, I've got a good wrap-up on environment, so if, if you want to start, I think that would work better. Truthfully, I can't say that I know much about it. I don't think anybody knows much about it as the problem, you know, because we don't have uh, we haven't really changed the climate this fast in recorded history so it's hard to say exactly how it's going to play out wish i could say more but i uh 
uh, don't have much here. Well, so, <laughs> you want you want me to? Uh... Yeah, yeah, go yeah, go ahead, Rob. Uh, so, getting back to Martin Pierre's question earlier, I have the for me, I believe in climate change. But, um, you know, you should all. It's not something to believe in. It is a thing. I, hey, I don't know engineering, so for me, it's a faith object. But I'm not much of an engineer. But I have a lot of friends who are very serious engineers, some of which work on this topic, and I trust them when they tell me that climate change is real, climate change is created by human action. I'm sort of in the, well, depending on what he said lately, but sort of in the Bjorn Lomborg camp where I believe that we're going to get what, out the, of The this. skeptical environmentalist guy? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to vouch for whatever he said recently, but that, that was sort of the- No, that was just the name of his book. Yes, yes. And I think his general shtick is that actually economic development is more important than restricting economic development to, but we don't need to go down that path. But my, my general thought is that this problem will be solved by technical innovation. Primarily, I'm not of the school that everything needs to change and, you know, the government needs to take over this, that, and the other thing to fix this and this, that, and the other thing, um, which you guys may uh, lean more towards. Oh, yeah, I completely disagree. With what? Oh, uh, just that um, economic development needs to be the priority. I mean, what I find far more likely is that we'll just sort of hit a wall in terms of how many people we're able to keep alive, how many people we're able to protect from the worst effects of climate change. And, and I don't think that so much that governments need to restrict economic activity. I just think that it will become restricted. Uh, so yeah, I think John is in the same camp. You think it? sort of crisis is inevitable. Well, uh, what I think what I think is really interesting about that take about that, uh, you know, there's so many people suffering in the world from conditions that grow out of poverty, mm-hmm. that what our objective has to be is to continue to grow the world economy the way we have for the last 30 years or so in order to bring those people out of poverty. What's really interesting is almost always the person expressing that opinion is somebody who lives in the Northern Hemisphere whose skin is lily white and who's going to legitimately benefit from climate change. Like mm. those folks up in Minnesota are talking about a longer growing season. <laughs> What's interesting, if, if you go talk to people who are interested in the question in Bangladesh or in India or in Mexico, they're actually very concerned about climate change right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about somebody who you wouldn't think would be interested in sort of the global carbon parts per million in the air. But I, so I used to live when I was in Peace Corps up in a tiny little Mexican hill town. And for all of human, for all of recorded history, for all of human memory, between the month of December and the first days of June, not a drop of rain. For six months, not a drop of rain. And then for six months, rain every day. Torrential, horrible downpours every day. Agriculture depends on that exact cycle. Uh, but, but, but John, weather is not climate. Isn't your anecdotal story just exactly the same as a? Well, this is what I'm saying. For the last for the last ten years, the weather has been strange. And once you're getting into ten year ranges, you're talking about climate. You're talking about weather over time. I don't. I don't. I don't uh, no, I, I know. I know. I know. I know. You're representing a particular. Yeah, I'm being a dick. And I, I believe in climate. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. But, but what I'm saying is that even those. Well, two points here. One, America is the only country in the world where any significant number of people don't believe in climate change. And two, in other countries in the world, even the people that you would never expect to have really like a global perspective on what's going on, you know, farmers who don't know how to read, who have never been down out of their little Pueblo, those guys are like, yeah, dude, let's get some solar panels in here. We need to stop this right now because 
in as much as in the U.S., we think we've got time before the ocean rise. We think we've got time before the hurricanes come, before the megastorms are here every year, already seeing the effects of climate change. Guys, what does this mean for your environmental concerns? Because even me, as someone who thinks that climate change is real, but thinks we're going to, you know, basically thinks Elon Musk is going to solve it, uh, thinks we're going to solve it through technical innovation. Uh, even for me, the fact that oil has now become cheap and abundant again um, is problematic because I think that the, that actually, you know, I don't believe that a climate crisis is coming, but there's even some urgency for me. I'm like, well, shit, like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe not a climate crisis, but yeah, maybe Bangladesh will sink. I guess that would be a climate crisis. Wouldn't it? But like, you know, like maybe, maybe. I'm well, all, it, uh, again, it doesn't so much matter that, that mm -hmm. oil prices um, are low and that suddenly that there's a huge amount of it, or even that, that there's a huge global demand for it. Doesn't it? Because a lot of, it, no, all of that is important. It's just a lot of the developed world is spending a lot of money to switch their infrastructure over to natural gas, which is a much cleaner burning fuel. Mm -hmm. And but oil consumption. Our, our total emissions are going to stop growing at some point. But doesn't even... Sorry, go ahead. Yes, our total emissions are going to stop growing at some point, but for for folks in the crisis is coming tomorrow camp, you wanted that to be five, 10 years ago. And I, I would think that the fact that the U.S. is now producing 11 million barrels of oil a day rather than seven would have a tremendous impact on pushing that date forward, that the date where emissions stop, pushing that five to 10 years in the emissions stop growing significantly into the future. I mean, that, that, that's, that's what I think is most interesting from an environment. I, I truly don't know. I feel like that's kind of kind of a short-term thing. Like, you know, I feel like in 20 years, that's going to be a lot less relevant and, and more of what's going to be happening is, is the action's going to be in the developing world, not here. You mean in terms of demand? Yeah. And so what do I think about the, the price of oil affecting emissions? You know, we've been dumping stuff into the atmosphere for about a hundred years. It's not going to turn around immediately in one year of cheap oil prices isn't going to well, but we're, we're, we're now at four years, and I, I'm arguing we're probably going to be at, you know, 20 years. Yeah, but the reason, the reason it's cheap is because we can make oil and natural gas really, really cheap. But, and as we switch more, over more and more to natural gas, there will be less need to do that for oil. And people are going, going to be asking for LNG instead, liquefied natural gas. But it's, it's the U.S. It's both, man. Like, like the the oil. I mean, I was just looking before this. The oil, the oil graph is, you know, it's not spiking anymore, but it's it's still. I mean, it's still going up. Yes, natural gas. Anyways, tremendously more. I feel like I shouldn't pontificate about this too much because I I don't actually have much expert knowledge on this. We should we should move on to take some questions so you can get your movie. <laughs> well, John, yeah. I think had a, had a yeah, I got one last thing here, which is that yeah. Look, yeah, all right, low oil prices and even low LNG prices are going to keep us producing carbon longer than they would have otherwise, right? Yeah. And there's just a fact about climate change, barring some sort of unimaginable technology from Elon Musk that saves us, versus Elon Musk's real plan, which is to build a bunker in New Zealand and hide there while the world implodes. He's building a bunker in Mars. Um, well, he, yeah, he's going to put some people into that bunker on Mars, but who knows if it's going to be ready for him in time. But the point is, is at some point, there is a tipping point in terms of carbon in the atmosphere. And it's either the point at which we get into self-reinforcing carbon release chains, like the melting of the permafrost up in the Arctic, or uh, methane clathrate reactions about methane bubbling up from the ocean floor. Or there's just going to be a point 
you know, maybe around 3C, maybe even 2C, maybe it's 5 or 6C, at which the change in climate becomes extremely prejudicial to human life. There are just two points at which enough climate change is going gonna, is gonna to kill us mm-hmm. as civilization at the very least. You know, maybe Elon Musk and some of his buddies will be out in New Zealand. But as a civilization, we're going to end at some level of warming. And like Ernie says, nobody really knows uh, how much carbon is going to get us to that level of warming. What we do know is that we're already on track to beat 2C uh, and that we're not on track to seriously reduce world carbon emissions. And what we also know is if we get through this next oil price spike, a huge number of moneyed interests are going to have vested interest in getting a huge amount of carbon out of the ground. Uh, as of two years ago, it was enough to get us to 4C. It was like already made investments in future carbon production. Oh, interesting. Oh, God, so really? Like yeah. Uh-huh. So we'd, we'd have to convince Aramco and BP and everybody else to leave all that oil in the ground uh, mm-hmm. that they've already invested money in or we're getting to 4C. And it might even honestly be worse because we're learning that the oceans store a bunch of heat down below. And so when they bubble up 30 years from now, it might actually bump up uh, temperatures by full C like that day. So I think probably our best chance to turn that all around was like 2008, 2009, you know, imposing some sort of gas tax in the United States, reaching the Paris Climate Accords in a much stronger position a couple of years ago and sticking to it. I think we blew all our chances. I think we're uh, straight fucked. I think we're done. I think human civilization, as we know it, will be over in the next hundred years. And I think there is not any getting around it. I think the day we elect Donald Trump was the day we sealed the fate of the world. Oh, oh well, okay. Um, I am not that negative. I think there's a distinct chance there will not be human civilization in a uh, hundred years. But I think that uh, has a lot more to do with uh, war than climate change, But uh, um, which is sort of what my particular project is more oriented towards averting. Um, huh, so, well, we clearly feel strongly about climate change and the impending crisis. Um, I do not. But, uh, so it's interesting. That's because likely you'll be dead before you see the worst of it. You will sure. see horrifying megastorms and mass migrations in your lifetime, as well as mass starvations when just sources of food previously relied upon become unavailable. Things are going to get much more unstable much faster than you suspected. You know, it, it's, it's, it's quite possible that you guys are the, the boys who are crying wolf who are right this time. I mean, that's how the boy who cried wolf ends. The wolf actually comes and eats everybody. The problem is, if we were having this conversation, gosh, I don't know, in a, um, in a room in front of people in the 70s or something like that, there would be folks who would be asserting exactly what you're asserting right now in terms of overpopulation or aluminum, or I can't remember what the, oh, there's a famous guy who like promised he, anyway, whatever. I mean, the, this, this collapse crisis has been predicted for half a century now. Um, and we're on our fourth or fifth uh, reason for it. I'm just, I'm more optimistic. But it's interesting that, that you guys, your, your faith in catastrophe is so high that the fact that we're producing dramatically more hydrocarbons more cheaply doesn't bug you? No, it bugs me. Three things to get really quick, and then we'll, and we, I think we'll get the questions that I have have some uh, saved up. First Mm -hmm. is that I went to to school at Georgetown uh, Mm -hmm. in DC, which is a Jesuit university, and it's supposed to have some level of Jesuit values going on, but it's also a university focused on this study of foreign relations. So I had a professor in my last year of college, as the fracking boom was getting started, who was ecstatic ecstatic about fracking yeah. uh, because it was going to return the U.S.'s primacy and self-sufficiency in oil. 
but what struck me as insane was one, the Jesuit outlook of the university, mm -hmm. uh, and two, that just like the class before that class, we'd been talking about threats to US security based in climate change. And that somehow this guy, this old fogey, had, had not made the connection between these two, these two points. And the second thing is my dad, who's, who's gotten to be a lot more liberal since he retired, he always asks this one question of all his not any more liberal friends, which is that, look, he says, I'm a Catholic. What I say is we've got two options, climate change, not real at all, or it's exactly what they say it is. And if either one of these is true, and if we do what the people who say climate change is real want us to do, we just switch over to solar and get off of oil and get onto renewables and eat healthier food or whatever, what's the world going to look like at the end? What's it going to look like at the end if it wasn't true, if global warming wasn't real? Well, it's still going to be a better world. What if we do nothing and the climate change people are right? But billions of people are going to die. So between those two choices, it seems like the clear moral imperative is to just act as if it was real, whether or not it's real. I mean, and for me, I, as I also, that appeals to me. And also just, I, it's like a sort of, you know, I almost sort of see it as a form of etiquette or something like that. It's maybe it's from my days camping, you know, sort of leave it the way you found it or this, that, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it is tremendous. It is fascinating that it, it, you know, how can you be a humanist or have a faith in humanity or technological, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, if you're not just inspired by the idea that we can just, you know, make our whole life happen out of sunshine, you know, it's just, it's extraordinary. Uh, so yeah, even though the, I've, I've yet to be, yet to be persuaded by the uh, pending climate apocalypse, I just think it's, I think it's an interesting way to orient things. Any last words? And then I've got, I've got questions. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Let's go All into the questions. So from, I think, French dude who was in here. Well, Martin Pierre is Canadian, but yes. Oh, oh, nice. Well, anyway, do you include nuclear in the quote-unquote renewable predictions of yours? Any comment on the possibility of a France-style nuclear renaissance? Hmm. Uh, I think uh, certainly in countries where they don't have a lot of earthquakes. <laughs> That's a good point. Very good point. <laughs> but yeah, nuclear energy is um, one of the best current alternatives we have at this point to coal, oil, gas, etc., because you can do it at scale for pretty cheap. And for the most part, it's it's quite clean. You just have the end, you've got a bunch of barrels of nuclear waste. And again, if there's an earthquake, then there's a big problem. But for a country like France, that's relatively geologically stable. Nuclear is a great option. And in, in terms of feeding energy needs, especially in the, the developing world, nuclear should be seen and used and exploited as much as possible. I, I was telling the people in the chat that I, I really don't like nuclear as an option for like the energy renaissance. Not because anything you just said isn't true. That's, that's all correct. And even there's stuff like molten salt reactors that look like they're uh, extremely safe, even in, in, in cases of earthquake critical failure. But... For me, what this renewable energy renaissance represents uh, represents is maybe a chance to democratize power production. That is, yeah, you're always going to need big plants to run your industrial plant in any given country. But the idea that instead of you as a person buying into a grid that's centrally controlled, and especially in the case of nuclear, federally controlled, just getting some rollout solar mats and throwing them on your roof, being able to create a certain amount of independence for yourself, which... Rob, I think you got to see the attraction in that kind of idea, right? That, that is fascinating. You know, John, I had never really thought about that before. I mean, I'm a traditionally pro-nuclear guy, but it's true. And speaking as someone who's 
actually done a little bit of work on trying to build a nuclear plant in the developing world. It is, the nuclear power is about the most statist thing you can imagine. I've never really thought about that. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the reason all libertarians should be on board with renewables is that finally everybody could have their off-the-grid cabin in the woods right in their suburb. I'm, 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 a, I'm a pretty... I'm a pretty lazy, uh, pretty lazy libertarian. <laughs> I like my modern comforts, but that you know that is that is actually fascinating. I hadn't really considered about that. Like the amount of just nation-state buy-in you need at this point to run a nuclear plant, the legislation, the investment, the liability. The, yeah, you can't you can't run a nuclear plant without a without an overweening state. And I hadn't really thought about that. That's kind yeah. of fascinating. The the other point here is that Ernie's right, and I, I think I kind of own myself here. That is that. I think most of the people talking about the beautiful libertarian possibilities of rolling out solar maps on top of people's houses are white and live in the northern hemisphere versus people who just want to get their lights on. So like Ernie said, whatever gets us off of carbon and onto you know, enough power for everybody is probably the right way to go. But I, I do have to say, though, if for, especially for people who consider... So I've lately, through some conversations, I've always been pro-nuclear. I'm pro-nuclear also because, once again, that sort of just glee and technological advance is just like fucking cool, man. You know, like it, it's sort of, call me a 1950s sci-fi kid or something, but just, you know, atomic everything sounds kind of exciting. That's and awesome. also for somebody who who's big into the idea of off-world colonization or whatnot, you know, so nuclear power sources are kind of a big thing uh, for that. But I, if, I, you to, if you need to fix shipping, uh, small nuclear reactors, I mean, I don't know if anybody knows, but in like the 60 year life of an American aircraft carrier, they fuel it twice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I, and also there's the fact that like, what annoys me about the US and Europe and whatnot, it's like, it, it's really been frustrating to me over the past five, 10 years to have the Germans the best engineers on the planet just get out of the business of nuclear plants because we know that dozens of nuclear plants are going to be built across china and india mm -hmm. um with perhaps engineering standards that are not as you know uh high tone as the germans um and that's kind of sad to me that the us germany uh japan uh, have all just sort of um uh jumped out of nuclear power plant development because if we want to put together some stuff like the molten salt reactor or you know stuff that is safer or whatnot i mean we need to develop these technologies and the fact that most of the developed world has just decided not to develop i think you know the, the nuclear plants we have in the u.s are mostly built in the 70s i don't think we built a new one yeah they're all they're all hitting the ends of their their planned lifetimes yeah, and, and and I think that's that's kind of sad because there will be hundreds of nuclear plants built in the next twenty years, and they're going to be using nineteen seventies technology because we just stopped developing, which is a shame. But you know, I had a friend who sort of the dangers are immense. You know, you look at what happened at Fukushima. I mean, that's the sort of thing. And interestingly, for someone like me who doesn't necessarily believe in the climate apocalypse that's supposedly impending, I'm like, well, yeah, then I guess you know, and renewables seem to be doing well, and this, that, and the other thing. You know, maybe we should just sort of build our nuclear plants on the moon, keep them up there because of all the, the, the possible negativity or whatnot. But if I did believe in the climate apocalypse, wouldn't I want as much nuclear, nuclear as possible? There's a little, you know, if, if I did believe that we're about to, the fact that Trump got elected this year means everybody in Bangladesh is going to die five years from now. Wouldn't yeah. that mean that I'd want to get whole hog behind nuclear? I mean, that, that seems like a contradiction in your... Your well, own. The, big, the big objection there is it takes as much state investment to get nuclear back up and running in the United States as it does to invest in renewals. 
And it takes so much longer to get nuclear online versus yeah. versus immediate gains. In. Now, an interesting thing is there's a global international effort to develop fusion. That's the best thing that's running anywhere. Uh, and the U.S. pulled out of that like 10 years ago over some mm-hmm. over some spat with the GOP in the Congress. And what we decided we wouldn't give them was uh, $10 billion. So, mm-hmm. you know, saving the world for free energy. For us. That's we lost what 1.5 trillion in the Trump tax cut. What's 10 billion out of 1.5 trillion? Yeah, less not a whole lot. I'm not super good at math, but I think it's less. Yeah, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, guys, but I am being petitioned to come have dinner, so I have to pull out of the talk and I can't have I can't take any more questions. But uh, thank <laughs> you both. It was a enlightening experience. It was a delight to have you, Ernie. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna make this a three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a three-way. Hells yeah! <laughs> there it is. All right. Uh, have uh, fun answering more questions. See you later. Thanks everybody for listening. Cheers. See you, man. All right. Uh, new question. Can Venezuela be saved? This is from Loga Cool Extreme, who's been here from the very beginning and uh, has been trying to get this question on for a while. I'm a big fan of Logo Cool Extreme. He's probably one of the biggest commenters on the channel. So if he has any other questions, we should definitely focus on those. But the Venezuela, I don't know enough, I'll be honest. I'll be free to, I will I will bloviate about it for a bit. But John, do you have actually any specific knowledge? About yeah, so Venezuela can save itself. Venezuela cannot be saved, especially the United States. That's That's the point to hammer home. What happened in Venezuela for anybody who needs the like the very briefest the briefest of catch-ups is that it was a Petro state the way that Mexico is sort of a Petro state that is that it ran its government off of some of the proceeds of oil production. They elected he got ousted in a coup and then they re-elected a guy named Hugo Chavez and we helped get him out that first time so he was pretty anti-American. And what Chavez did was he took way more of those oil revenues and he turned them into direct subsidies to the people. You know, he gave them money, he he lowered food prices, he lowered fuel prices. And for a while, that worked out pretty well. And if you've got somebody responsible in charge, it's not actually a bad strategy. The way that Mexico handled it in the early days of the revolution, the days of Lázaro Cárdenas, which is that you've got a big oil industry. It makes a certain amount of profit every year. You siphon off 10% of that profit and you use it to subsidize stuff that your people are doing. It's in some sense the resources of the whole people. And in some sense, they deserve the proceeds from that. The problem was Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela what it's taken Mexico 70 years to do, which is that they uh, they robbed the oil industry blind, their national oil industry. I don't mean they were defrauding companies. I'm just saying they took all of the proceeds and instead of reinvesting those in oil so they could keep production up, they spent them on the people. And at the same time, Hugo Chavez pretty much ruined Venezuelan democracy. And what happened was he died and then his, his right-hand man took over and got his, his, his less talented number two. Yeah, uh, less talented in terms of demagoguery and also less talented in terms of government. And Hugo Chavez wasn't that great in terms of government in the first place. So whatever democracy was left in Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro has been thoroughly torching it. And they're having food crises, they're having fuel crises, countries going straight to And there is a large lobby of conservative Venezuelans in the United States, similar to the Cuba lobby in Miami, that's trying to get the United States involved in solving Venezuela or saving Venezuela. Such well, a fucking nightmare. Such a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. And the reason we have strong sanctions against Venezuela right now is that lobby. But if you look at the success of the Miami lobby in uh, overthrowing Cuba, well, what did they do? Well, they kept the Castros in power for longer than any other world leader in, in the world. 
So what we're set to do in Venezuela is exactly the same. If we let them figure their own problems out, yeah, it's going to suck. But in 10 years, Venezuela is going to be a democracy again. If we get involved, if we keep doing exactly what we're doing, we're going to turn Venezuela into some sort of horrible apocalyptic dystopia, and it's going to stay that way forever. Like Afghanistan, which, you know, has been a terrible dystopia, not since 2001, but for a solid 30 years before that. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, one of the happiest things imaginable is that after an incredibly fraught and vicious second half of the 20th century, the Colombian government sat down with FARC in, was it last year, year before? I think two years ago. I mean, you can talk about narcos and whatnot, but all war in the Western Hemisphere had stopped. And what is really, really horrifying to me, you know, we're not fucking dumb enough to invade Venezuela. Even Trump and Tillerson are not that stupid. I think there's got to be enough adults in Washington, D.C. who would realize just how that would tank our relationships with the entire continent, two continents, the world. But what I do think is very possible and might be happening right fucking now that terrifies me is that those dipshits and the U.S. intelligence community are like, oh, let's get the band back together. And they're putting together, you know, the same clutch of coup fomenting, contrafunding assholes. Mm-hmm. That, that I think is a very real possibility. And yes, that would destroy Venezuela for all time. What's interesting about the Venezuelan history is, I remember this vaguely, is they've done this four times already. Talk about the cycles of the oil industry. Things go kind of well for a little while. Yes, it was a, a, a dumber set of, you know, Chavez was worse than, than usual. But yeah, they, they spend ridiculously when the times are going well, and then they have a nasty crisis. And then they, that actually the oil market probably isn't coming back. So yes, Venezuela is in a terrible, terrible position. I think isolating them and like starting the coup party is, is, would be a desperate, desperate mistake. And I fear that that might be happening. What's fascinating is, you, you know, Trump and Tillerson started shooting their mouths off. And Maduro, I mean, that's it's the exact same thing we do with Iran. Every time U.S. diplomatic figures or presidents shoot their mouth off about a nasty regime in the country, you give them incredible power. It's, it's almost a partnership. I mean, Maduro is one of the most loathed leaders in the world, you know, by his people. But every time Trump or Tillerson gets up and talks about him, He's given an incredible gift because, you know, as much as Venezuelan people might not, sections of the Venezuelan people might not like Maduro, they really don't like U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I, I am not optimistic about Venezuela, but I've become, I become more and more pessimistic to the extent that the U.S. gets involved in saving them. Other next, next questions? I think we actually, we, we got to a lot of them in the previous talk. I'm, I'm out. Uh, any other questions? I think we might be closing in here. Uh, that's a great question from Eric. Uh, do you think Trump plans on intervening in another country, or will he focus more on domestic politics? I think I think I. Well, I don't know if it's the smart answer. I know exactly what I think on this issue. I think you're right in that Donald Trump. I don't think he's brave enough, and I don't think the people around him are dumb enough, or even racist enough to let him invade Venezuela, to let him invade Iran. But What I've said in the last couple of shows is that I think a lot of what the administration is doing from the Muslim ban right through to recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel is they're praying for a terrorist attack. They're praying for a second 9-11 because then then they can do something. The minute you get an even half plausible tie from some mass attack in the United States back to Iran, then even if it's not an invasion, they get to put some bombs behind the rhetoric. And I think I think they'd be really happy for that. 
And you can see it, anybody who saw the news last month, where they were talking about a bloody nose attack against North Korea, and some senior administration officials said, yeah, that'd be great for the 2018 midterms. Which is probably not inaccurate. No, he's right. At the cost of, you know, maybe 30 million South Koreans and God knows how many million North Koreans, yeah, the Trump could probably sweep the midterms. I literally, I cannot understand the kind of person who thinks that way, but they exist and they're in charge of our government. Yeah, I don't know. Hey, he's made it a year into his presidency without invading anybody. I guess Obama made it three years, right? Before living? Well, did we have boots on the ground in Syria before Donald Trump? No, we didn't. Uh, I don't know if that counts as an invasion, but... I think we did. I think, yeah. I, I can't. What about Yemen? Yes, we don't have boots on the ground in Yemen constantly now. I thought... I thought we had advisors, though. Oh, huh, that's interesting. But the problem is, yeah, but Yemen, I don't know, in my mind... I'm, I'm being facetious Yemen anyways. You're, you're right. Both as Obama projects, so I can't really... No, you're, you're right anyway. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, that's interesting. But, you know, because is there a more constant presence now? Because Trump has jacked up our participation in every shitty conflict we're involved in. Um, is there a more constant presence in Syria and Yemen now? That could be possible. But there were definitely special forces dipshittery going on in both those countries during Obama. So I don't know. I see that as more of a continuum. I can't really, you know, unless he, unless he invades Damascus, I'm not going to call that, I'm not going to call that a, a, a Trump conflict. Actually, Trump has been great for the Syrian conflict, had been great for the Syrian conflict before the recent. Which, we, which we've talked about. I think sort of accidentally he's, he's managed to. Which he's now killed by announcing that we're just going to have a base in northern Syria forever. Um, couple more questions here. Fathel Gueda is, do you think a new major terrorist attack in the U.S. would give Trump the support to attack Iran? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's what we just said, 100%. Yeah. Now, as far as invading Iran, I don't honestly, you know, there's been some, I read some interesting stuff about the war gaming for that. I am not a, I mean, we can destroy Iran's air force, we can destroy Iran's navy, but as far as actually invading Iran, that is a much more difficult thing than anything we have done. And whereas the average American thinks that Iran is exactly the same as Iraq, the actual war gamers know that it's much larger. Yeah. Uh, so what we're probably talking about is an attack on Iranian interests in Iraq and Syria. I, I do not think there would be, as, as well as a destruction of their Air Force and Navy, but I do not think there would be an actual invasion of Iran because even fucking Trump is not that fucking stupid. And which I've said uh, in previous shows, is the best possible argument for just letting Iran develop a nuke. The only thing that's going to keep us out of that country. From Duximus, talking about U.S. politics, any chance of a third party with, a, I think, due to the record-setting unpopularity of the last two mainstream candidates, Trump Hillary? Uh, no. There is a zero opportunity for a third party in U.S. politics. The only chance of any kind of turnover or renovation of the two parties is that they're both being primaried from the right and left. There are sort of Berniecrats working to move the Democratic Party left, and the Tea Party's pretty much already done that job with the Republican Party, and it's going to continue to do so. But as far as actual independent candidates, uh, no, I don't know. Yeah, I, I sort of founded my YouTube channel to argue for third-party candidates. I've got an essay on the topic that looks really sort of Earth 2 now, because uh, it was definitely written pre-Trump. But the sort of valuable work that third-party candidates do, I don't ever anticipate, never anticipated a third-party candidate winning the presidency. But what if you look at Ross Perot, if you look at George Wallace, what a third-party candidate does is shift the agenda. Trump has already shifted the agenda in a direction much worse than I could have imagined. I mean, if you really want to look at that, there were two third-party candidates in the last election. They were Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, yeah. 
And honestly, that gives you the outlook. Somebody was asking about the possibility of a progressive politician running against Donald Trump in 2020. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but what you really saw in the 2016 election was the structure of left-right politics in the United States. The structure of the Democratic Party is incredibly strong, even though no one's really on board with it. It tends to win. And the structure of the Republican Party is now incredibly febrile. No, that's feverish. Incredibly weak in any case. And it allowed Donald Trump to sweep in from the right with zero opposition from actual establishment candidates. But, you know, for 20, 2020, actually, my prediction is that the Democrats will not get it together. They will. No, I mean, God, these these yeah. budget deals where they can't they can't even make a move towards DACA. Yeah, yeah. no, we got we got nothing. But I, you know what? I think Trump's going to lose because Texas will go blue. That's my prediction. Trump's going to lose, but not because of any improvement in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Exactly. And if we're making if we're making long term, if we're making long term predictions, twenty twenty four, we get whatever the Uber Trump is that finally ushers in the American demise. Oh yeah, that's twenty twenty four. Yeah, we elect we elect yeah. basically some cipher of, of Hillary Clinton that is yeah. a perfect establishment Democratic candidate. Tim Kaine or something. They keep everything. Yeah, like Tim Kaine, they keep everything going for four years. The reaction is so much worse. <laughs> uh, we elect Trump two point and and uh, the United Paul Nealand or whatever. All right, I uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta take off, and I had a movie to go to, and we've done uh, two hours ten minutes, so I think we're. Uh...